As Steve said, the topic for today is skill and questions. Um, so I'm hoping we've got a lot of skillful questions from the audience. It's one of the distinctive features of the Buddha's teachings is how he encouraged people to ask questions. His next to last teaching, on the night he was passing away, was, any questions? <laughs> he announced to the monks who were there, he said, if you have anybody has any questions about the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the path of the practice, you can ask them now. And he made this offer three times, which was the Indian way of saying, okay, I'm serious about this. If anybody has any doubts, go ahead and... So you can imagine, you know, someone on their deathbed asking any last questions before they go. Um, and this, this is a policy he had throughout his teaching career. He trained his pe- listeners to ask. He, he contrasted his style of teaching with what he called training in bombast, which is where the, t- the teacher says something that sounds really nice, very poetic, but doesn't li- give you opportunity to ask questions about what do you mean by these, these nice teachings. He also contrasted it with the, the style of teaching that one of the other ascetic groups at the time did, which was that the teacher knows what's right, don't ask any questions, just do as you're told. The Buddha always encouraged people, no, if you don't understand something, if there's something you have any doubts about, go ahead and ask questions. Um, there are three reasons for this. One it was the topic that he was teaching. The other was his motivation for teaching. And the third had to do with his sense of what a teacher's responsibility was, um, kind of the ethics of teaching. In terms of the topic, of course, his main teaching was about suffering and the end of suffering. And he says, suffering usually gives rise to bewilderment. You wonder, why is this suffering happening to me? And then this followed by a search. Is there anybody who knows a way out of this? And so just the nature of the topic is something that inspires questions to begin with. And he encouraged that. He, he framed his own search for awakening as a search for what is skillful. And he found it by repeated questioning. He examined his actions, the results that were coming from his actions. If the results were not satisfactory, he would ask himself, okay, what am I doing wrong? He turned the question, one, back on, his, on himself, and two, on his actions. And he found by examining his actions, by framing the questions properly, he was finally able to find the, um, the skill that he wanted. So you have doubts about your suffering, why it's happening. You don't deny them. You actually probe into them and find, what is it that I find on, on, that I don't understand here? And also, secondly, he didn't leave anything about that topic as a mystery. Sometimes you hear people talking about you know, the mystery of the Dharma, or life. You know, religion is supposed to have a sense of mystery. This is one topic of the Buddha that you don't want any mystery about why you're suffering. You want to know why, and you want to know what you can do to put an end to it. And so this, um, so because he'd found the end of suffering by asking himself questions, he also encouraged his students that they should ask questions about their own actions, what they were doing that was skillful, until they could finally get to their desired results. These are the questions that he later framed as categorical teachings or categorical questions, the ones that are true across the board. These are the sort of the foundational questions, the foundational topics of the teaching. In terms of his motivation, um, it was basically the Buddha's compassion, one focusing on suffering as the topic he wanted to teach about, and also specifically the end of suffering. But he also saw that suffering, excuse me, teaching and learning had to be a cooperative enterprise. That the teacher had to make sure that the students understood and the students had to make sure that they understood. And they had to work together. It wasn't just that the teacher gets up there and teaches something that sounds nice and everybody accepts it and goes home. He wanted to make sure you understood what was going on. If you didn't understand, he wanted you to question. So that had to do with his motivation. Finally, in terms of the ethics of being a teacher, 
he said one of the responsibilities of a teacher is to, fig is to give the students grounding and trying to find out what should be done, what should not be done. And this is one of the basic dualities of the Buddhist teachings all the way through. That the categorical teachings that he gave were not just truths about reality, but they were truths that carried duties. He basically listed two of his teachings as, as categorical. One was that skillful qualities should be developed, unskillful qualities should be abandoned. So there's a duty right there, developing and abandoning. And then as he um, made this more precise when he was teaching about the, the other teaching was the Four Noble Truths. And it specifically focuses in on the question of why there is suffering, what you're doing to cause it. In this case, you have the, the truth of suffering, and the duty there is to comprehend it to the point of dispassion. Then there's the cause of suffering, or the, what he calls the origination of suffering. The duty there is to abandon it. There's the cessation of suffering, the fact that suffering can be ended. That's something to realize. And then there's a path there, which is to be developed. So his categorical teachings all carry a sense of should and should not. The things you should do, the things you should not do. Um, and this is the role of a teacher. Any teacher who does not give you a foundation for looking into the question of what should and should not be done is basically abandoning the teacher's responsibilities. Um, we see this in... The Buddha was not the kind of person who would go around and pick fights with people, but he would search out teachers if they were teaching a, a doctrine about karma, which denied the effectiveness of karma or denied the reality of karma, um, and said, you know, do you realize that you're, you're not giving the students a, a foundation for what you should be doing, which is giving them a foundation for what should and should not be done? If, for instance, if you believe that everything you experience in the present moment is determined by the past, okay, you're not going to think about, well, what should I do, change to do, because the present moment is a given. The implication there, of course, is there's something that you're doing right now that is causing the suffering you're experiencing. So you should look into that. Or if you deny that, you know, that you have any choices in the present moment, again, the Buddha would come in and confront you. you know, you're, you're not giving the student a foundation for looking into what should and should not be done. So this, you've got the terms of the topic, in terms of his motivation, and also in terms of just the ethics of teaching. The Buddha felt that he had to encourage his students to ask questions, but not only to ask questions, but also to learn how to frame skillful questions, skillful questions that actually would help get to the end of suffering. He called this ability to frame skillful questions appropriate attention, and the Pali is Yoniso Manasigara. And it basically is a question of knowing what ten questions you should pay attention to and which ones you should not. As he said, it's the internal quality that is most effective in leading to awakening. This develops one of the factors for awakening, which is called Dhamma-Wichaya, which is the analysis of qualities, looking into your mind, seeing what in the mind is actually leading in a skillful direction, which is leading into an unskillful direction. He himself found, said that he got onto the path to awakening when he started asking these questions of himself. He, this quality is also that something that should be brought to the activity of listening to the Dharma. He said you're, when you're listening, you should focus your full attention on the Dharma. The word he'd use, egaka which means basically bringing the mind to one dwelling place around the, that particular topic. And then asking questions to yourself that would be conducive to how do I apply this teaching to my own suffering so I can put an end to it. It's basically right view at the beginning of the path. Um, now the reason it's important how you frame your questions is because a question is kind of like a picture that's got a missing piece. You know, say, what is X? 
in, in some of the languages is more obvious than is in English. They will they will give a sentence and then they'll put a question word in the sentence for the place where the answer would be. This is the way Thai is. And so if you think of it, if you've got the wrong shape for the puzzle piece, you're not going to get the right piece to go in. It's, it's like the, you know, the question in... Uh, I've forgotten the, book, the name of the book now. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. What is the meaning of life? 41. Um, <laughs> the piece doesn't fit into the puzzle. And so you have to be very careful about what questions or frames you give because if you've got the wrong puzzle, or another analogy would be a machine, you've got a machine that's actually looking for a particular missing part, but if the machine is, is something is like a machine gun, can you, you do harm with it, can, it might be best not to try to fill in that piece. You want to look for a machine that's actually doing something useful, and then if it's missing any pieces, you look for those pieces. So this is the nature of framing questions. It really is a frame, and it's got a shape that's going to determine what kind of answer it would fit into the question. And as the Buddha said, the sermon begins with asking the proper questions, giving the proper frame, asking it of the proper people. Um, the beginning question for discernment, the Buddha says, what when I do it will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? What when I do it will lead to my long-term harm and suffering? And the discernment there lies in one, realizing that happiness will depend on your actions. Two, long-term is possible. And then three, it's better than short-term. That's the very basic, basic beginning of discernment. It's also the basis of heedfulness, which is another quality the Buddha said lies at the basis of all other skillful qualities. Um, there's an author, and I think I never learned how to pronounce his name properly. Is it Pynchon or Pynchon? Who wrote Gravity's Rainbow? Pynchon, yeah. He one time said, if they can get you to ask the wrong questions, it doesn't matter what answers you come up with, which I think is very perceptive. So the Buddha is basically saying, to be a good student, you have to learn how to ask the right questions so that you actually get useful answers. We see this emphasis on questions in the way the Buddha framed a lot of his suttas. You can imagine you know, giving, a, you know, giving a discourse to people and expecting them to memorize it while they're, they're listening. Now, suppose you were expected to memorize what I was saying today. <laughs> I would have to think very carefully about how I would frame my teaching and how I would express it. I'd have to use a lot of repetition. I'd have to use a lot of, be very careful about how I frame the issue. And this is one of the things we notice in the Buddhist teachings. Again and again and again, in the suttas, he will start out with a declarative statement and then post questions about it. And then in the course of explaining it, filling in the blanks in the questions. So this gives you an idea of you know, what question a particular teaching is meant to answer. And given that the, with the suttas, we also have the question about who's there, who asked the question, the Buddha asks if it's a dialogue, or who is he talking to? Is he talking to the monks in general, or is he talking to someone from a different background? And if so, what does that have to do with the kind of answer that he's going to give? So you get a sense of whether this is an answer that he would give across the board to everybody, if it's to monks in general, or is it specifically an answer he would give to Brahmins, or an answer that he would give to kings, or an answer that he would give to ordinary lay people? And here we see the Buddhist standards for his speech would be that it would be true, beneficial, and timely. It would be basically there were sort of three checkpoints before he would open his mouth and say something. The first one, is this true? Secondly, is it beneficial? If it's not beneficial, he, even though it was true, he would not he would not discuss it. And if it's true and beneficial, then the question is: Is this the right time to be harsh with the listener, or is this the right time to be gentle with the listener? And so. 
the question that the listener may have asked or the, or the question that the listener's presence may have posed for the Buddha is very important in understanding specific teachings and in particular, um, particular discourses. And he said that one of your measures of a, per, a person's wisdom or discernment is how they approach questions. And he talked about four types of approaches, and that's going to be the topic for today, is these four different ways he had of approaching questions, or of classifying questions. Some questions, he said, deserve a categorical answer, in other words, something that's true across the board. Others require an analytical answer, which, in other words, you would have to take the question and you'd have to reframe it a little bit before he would answer it. In other words, the question wasn't quite right or it was coming from a misunderstanding and before he didn't want to propagate that misunderstanding by just giving an answer to the question. He'd step back and say, look, we have to reframe the question. We'll get into a couple examples of this later on. Um, and then there are questions that would require cross-questioning, which in, he would ask questions of the listener or the person who asked the questions before he would give his answer. Now, in some cases that would be because he felt the person would not understand his answer when he gave it, so he wanted to make sure that they were looking at it from the right framework. In other cases, it would be he was trying to get them to ask questions of themselves, basically to repeat the process that he went through on the way to his awakening. He said, look at your behavior, try to measure it against these standards. Does it measure up? And if it doesn't measure up, okay, what can you do to change? This is also a technique that he would use in debate. He would pose an analogy, or usually give an example, and then ask questions of the other person, basically get the other person to commit to a particular interpretation of the example, and then he got him. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the Buddha's getting involved in debates. If it's, it, the way he would debate people is, one, he felt if the person were truthful, and two, if he felt the person would benefit from the debate. Um, he, was, he wasn't there just to score points. The one example I can find in the canon where he actually was scoring points was because the person had brought along an audience. And for the sake of the audience, he wanted to make sure that the audience was not was, was very clear about which particular interpretation was right. And finally, there are questions that would be put aside. In other words, the, question, the framework of the question is totally wrong. It would either get you on the wrong path or just distract you from the path. And so those are the questions he would say, I will not answer this question. He would give a reason. It wasn't just he said, okay, I'm gonna, I don't want to talk about that. It was more, if you, if you pr pursue this particular kind of question or this particular kind of framework, it's going to lead you away from the path, so it's best not to answer that kind of question. And so we'll get into that a little bit later as well. These are usually questions framed in terms of becoming. And in other words, looking at the world and, and getting really interested in, is the world infinite? Is the world finite? Is it eternal? Is it not eternal? That was an issue we'd put aside. Then there are questions about yourself. Do you have a self? Do you not have a self? Do you exist? Do you not exist? Questions he put aside. And this, this question of yourself in a world, this is called the process of becoming. This is the process that we keep doing again and again and again. You know, we have a desire. We think about what, it, what in the world, what kind of world is that desire relevant to? Or what in the world is relevant to that desire? And then we take on an identity. Okay, I want to pursue that desire in that particular world. This is the entity, identity that I have to assume in order to do that. Now we do that on many levels. We do that on an internal level, as we think about, you know, what do I want to have for lunch today? You know, what's what's the best restaurant nearby? Then um, when you could sit here for the entire morning, forget about questions, and think about you know, what you want to do for lunch. 
and you've taken on an identity in that particular world in which the restaurant and the way there are relevant and there are a lot of other things about you that are not relevant to that particular world. Then another issue comes up and you take on a new identity and around another particular desire. <coughs> These are, this is kind of process the Buddha said leads to suffering. And so questions that would be framed in trying to pin down who you are and what the world is that you're in, you'd say, put those aside. Those are irrelevant because you're just going to be creating more and more becoming, which is getting you away from the, pro what the goal of the path, which is to put an end to suffering. So we have these four types of approaches to answering questions. And unfortunately, when the Buddha lists the four approaches, you know, they're categorical, Questions can deserving a categorical answer, questions deserving an analytical answer, questions that deserve to be cross-questioned before you get an answer, and then questions that deserve to be put aside. He never defines them or never gives examples when he lists out the four things. However, when you go through the canon, you'll find that he flags these questions. He says, okay, this question is one that deserves an analytical answer, or this one does not deserve a categorical answer, or this question deserves to be put aside. So he gives you kind of warnings as he's going through his as he's going through the teachings. Unfortunately, now we have the canon on CD-ROM, and so we can look for the, his little flagging comments about what, what he's about to say when he's going to ask a cross question, or when he's going to give an analytical answer or put something aside. You can go through and you can search the canon and find out the questions that he that he approaches in these different ways, and you can begin to ca classify the questions of his um, that his teachers respond to this way. The lessons we can learn from this as we go through these different types of questions today was, one, we see that teaching and learning are a cooperative enterprise. This is, again, one of the ways that the Buddha showed his compassion, is he wants to work together with the student, expecting that the student has to put in something, the teacher has to put in something, in order for the you know, useful information or useful examples to be transmitted. Secondly, we see the role of appropriate attention, or asking the appropriate questions in overcoming doubt, both while you're listening to the Dharma and while you're practicing. Now, when you're listening to the Dharma, the question should always be, is this relevant to putting an end to suffering? If so, how can I apply it to my own suffering? That's the appropriate way to listen to a Dharma talk. And then while you're practicing, okay, and what I'm doing, is this actually helping, or is that actually getting in the way? Does this meet up with the standards that the Buddha established, or is there something that I'm, where I'm still lacking? It also gives you a, a way of framing questions while you're reading and listening. One is when you're, you're learning how to read specific suttas, you look at the framing questions. So what question is this particular teaching designed to answer? And how, how large a part of the topic is it going to cover? And then secondly, when you're listening, listening to teachings in a general way, what are the framed teachings? What are, the, what are the basic underlying teachings that the Buddha presents? And which other teachings have to fit into the context? In the case of that first type, um, you know, what are the questions that a particular sutta is meant to answer? Probably one of the most important examples is um, the, this, well, there are two of them, but the Satipatthana suttas, um, the one in Majjhima 10 and the one in Deacon the Gaya 22. This is a case where the Buddha makes a declarative statement about the practice of, of establishing mindfulness. And then when he starts asking questions, he answers questions about only a part. For example, with the first establishing, you, you keep focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. 
And then when you get to that topic in the sutta, he says, what does it mean to keep focused on the body? Period. And it's the same all the way through with all the different, different establishings of mindfulness. It's simply, what does it mean to keep focused? Which means that the rest of the formula is not discussed in the sutta. If you want the answers to the rest of the formula, you have to look elsewhere. And there's a lot of confusion around this. Many times you hear that the sutta gives a complete picture of Satipatthana practice. And because it, and there are certain sections in there which don't talk about doing anything about, say, a skillful or an unskillful mental state, or a pleasant or unpleasant feeling when they arise, gives the impression that well, you don't do anything about these things. You just let them come. But when you realize, okay, the Buddha is only giving you a part of the, a part of the, um, the formula there. The rest of what does it mean to be ardent as you are mindful? What does it mean to be alert? How do you put aside greed and distress with reference to the world as you're focusing on this? This all has to be found elsewhere. And as we look into ardency, it's basically if something unskillful comes up, you try to get, you try to abandon it. If something skillful comes up, you try to develop it. So there are things to be done in mindfulness practice. You don't just watch things coming and going. Another example is, is the, the Buddha's first sermon. You look at the life that he led up to that point, and basically, it, as he said, it followed two extremes. Now, up to that point, it was believed that those two extremes were the only choices you had, either a life of sensual indulgence or a life of self-torture. And he comes up and says, look, the question was framed wrong. Both of the ex extremes are wrong. And, this, and then the middle path was an answer to the, the new question, which is, is there a skillful alternative? So here again, the, the way he reframes the question is an important part of the teaching in and of itself. And then finally, when you look into the biographical accounts of his search for awakening, such as Majjhima 36, where he talks about how he tries a particular course of action, realizes that there's something wanting here. This is not getting me where I want to go. You know, six years of self-torture, and he realizes, okay, this is, this is the wrong path. This is not getting me where I want. Is there an alternative? And so I had to realize, okay, there is there must be an alternative, aside from the way he had been phrasing the question. So that's in terms of reading specific suttas, is learning how to look at what questions are being asked, how he frames the question, and to what extent is this particular teaching meant to cover the whole topic, or does it cover simply part of the topic? So it helps having a background in how the Buddha approached questions is going to help you as you read specific suttas. In terms of looking at the teachings as a whole, you find there are a lot of issues um, around. You got two different teachings the Buddha gives, and you question, okay, which is, which is the basically the, the container, and which has to fit into the container. Uh, for example, one of the first questions you're hearing in Buddhism 101 all the time again: you know, if there is no self, then who does actions, and who receives the result of actions? That's taking the teaching on anatta as a foundational teaching, and the questions of karma would have to fit into that teaching, given that you assume that there is no self then how can we say that anyone is an action, an agent? How can we say that anyone receives the results of the actions? When you actually look at the teaching that the Buddha, as the Buddha gave it, it's the other way around. He starts with karma, and then he says, okay, given that we have, we have intentional actions, what kind of intentional action is it to assume a self? When is it skillful to assume a self? When is it not skillful to assume a self? In other words, he looks at self as an action. And then there are times when he, he will have you use the concept of self as you develop the path. Other times he'll have you put it aside. And the question is learning how to read. When is this action skillful? When is it not? 
And so you take karma as the underlying teaching there. Another one is, do we have to fit our search for happiness into the reality of anicca, or do we use the teaching of anicca in service for our search for happiness? A lot of times you see, okay, we have to accept the fact that everything is impermanent, and then to find happiness we have to content ourselves with the fact, well, things will change, so I've got to put up with it. That's a defeatist teaching. That's not how the Buddha himself approached it. He starts with, okay, we're looking for happiness. And when you use anicca, it's basically to see this thing that I've been going for, is it really a satisfactory result? And if it, the happiness is impermanent, okay, it's not up to snuff. I've got to find something better. A third example um, would be, as, you know, as a human being, what are you? And then based on your definition of what you are, could you, what can you know? Uh, I, I was talking with a Dharma teacher a while back, and he was saying, well, you know, given that we are just biological creatures, how can a biological creature, which is dependent on conditions, know anything unconditioned? So you're taking the definition of a person and then it's from that deciding what can people know. The Buddha's approach was the other way around. What can you know? What can you attain? And then, given that, okay, what assumptions do you make about human beings? And he found that something unconditioned could be found. Which means you go back and, and he looked at the way we define ourselves, and he ended up saying, you defi- any way you define yourself, you're going to place limitations on yourself. So you have to learn how to question your definition of what you are, based on the fact that you can find the unconditioned. A lot of these different questions about framework and content come down to the question of, which of the two big wisdom teachings in Buddhism are the frame? What are the three characteristics or the Four Noble Truths? And the commentaries basically say the three characteristics. In fact, when they define a categorical question, it's questions about the three characteristics. When the Buddha defines a categorical question, it's questions about the Four Noble Truths. And the question is, what difference does this make? If you assume that the three characteristics are a statement about the way things are, then you start out with anicca, dukkha, anatta. Okay, there is no self, therefore there's no agent. Um, recently, I had one of my students, whom I will call George, <coughs> broke up with his partner of a long time, whom I will call Martha. <laughs> and, he happened, and he happened to talk to one, a Dharma teacher and for some advice on how to handle the situation. And she said, well, you have to remember the really ultimate terms, there really is no George and there is no Martha. And as he told me, he realized that this is bad advice. <laughs> um, but they asked me, well, why did the Buddha teach that there is no George and there is no Martha? And I had to tell him, the Buddha never said that. We can get into that later if you want to get into But he never said the question, is there a self, is there no self? It was a question he put aside. Is there a being? Is there no being? He never says there's no being. He defines what a being is, and it's a process. But it's a process that we're continually doing. But if you have this belief that ultimately there is no agent and there is no self, it teaches irresponsibility. You're kind of copping out. You know, George can't reflect back on his relationship with Martha, what he did wrong, because there is no Martha. There's no George. It does not encourage a sense of responsibility for your actions. And when you're not responsible for your actions, then you can't really expect to learn from the situation. So it's kind of a cop-out. Secondly, if you accept the idea that the three characteristics are this across-the-board description of reality, in this context, clinging means holding on to something with a misunderstanding that the object is permanent. Therefore, if you hold on to it, something as realizing, okay, it's temporary, then there's no clinging. 
but that's still suffering. Third, there is no such thing as long-term happiness. Everything is impermanent. One of the images I've seen in, in this context is the idea that we're living on the beach, the waves are coming on shore, and we can't say, well, I prefer good waves over bad waves. I don't want to hold on to a good wave because it's going to go away anyhow. I can't push away the bad waves. They're going to come anyhow. So I just learned to learn to be on the beach and be okay about how the waves come on. Um, again, that's kind of defeatist. It's saying, we're stuck on the beach and can't do anything about it. In, t- in line with the clinging definition, there's sometimes you see that you should try not to have any fixed views. I was <coughs> going to France last year, and so I was watching this program on, on, on online. It's called Sagesse Bouddhiste. Can you imagine having an interview interview show every Sunday morning here in America with Buddhist teachers? Um, either would be a great great move or a dry idea of hell, um, <laughs> depending on who the teachers are. And so they had this guy on there, and the, the, the interviewer was a woman. And so they had this guy who was talking about dependent co-arising, and he was basically saying, we have to realize that the basic, she asked him, what is the practical lesson of dependent co-arising? And he said, you have to realize that you know, everything is just really impermanent, nothing, nothing can stay stable. And she said, well, give me a concrete example. And he said, well, it's like realizing that you know, the way I love my wife today is going to be different from the way I love my wife tomorrow, and we're going to have to accept that. And the look she gave him, <laughs> she was not buying this. <laughs> Again, it, it encourages ir- irresponsibilities. You just have to accept the fact I'm having an affair today. I might not have an affair tomorrow. But, um, <laughs> it's a cop-out. And also, there's, if you say uh, things are impermanent, stressful, there is no self, there's nothing to be done. There are no inherent duties in that teaching. You know, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we may die. You know, just saying that something is impermanent doesn't have any in, implicit duties. You can approach that, that teaching in any way at all, which is not really helpful. However, if you put the Four Noble Truths first, one, there is such a thing as long-term happiness. There is a, term, a happiness that is not subject to conditions. In this context, clinging does not mean holding on to things with knowing that they're impermanent. Basically, it's looking at your feeding habits, because the word for clinging in Pali also means to feed, to take sustenance on something. And when, when are you feeding in a skillful way and when are you feeding in an unskillful way? Can you find an attainment where you don't have to feed? That's basically what the Buddha is asking. This gives a possibility of getting across. In fact, that's the image he uses. It's, the path is a raft across this flood of views. And if you say, well, just don't have any fixed views, that doesn't get you across the flood of views, because the idea of having no fixed views as being a good thing is another view that just leads you down the, walk, down, the, down, the, down the river. Whereas the Buddha says, you have right view, which is part of that raft. You know, the view about asking the right questions about how to put an end to suffering and then following through with the answers. That's the rest of the path. But learning how to ask the right questions, that will get you across the river. Then you can let the, let the raft go. Don't let go of the raft halfway across the river. Okay? Get, make sure you get to the other side. So there is something that can be done. The Four Noble Truths carry their duties. It is possible to realize the cessation of suffering if you develop the path. In the course of that, you're going to have to c- comprehend suffering and learn how to abandon its cause. And finally, you're not bound by how you are defined in time and the world. 
There's an aspect of the mind, there's a dimension that the mind can touch, which is not conditioned by these things. So the Four Noble Truths offer hope, whereas the three characteristics leave you on the shore waiting for the waves to come in, subject to the fact that you know, Hurricane Dorian may come and decide to settle over you for a couple of days, and you'd be helpless. Whereas the Buddha is offering a way across the, raft, across the river to get to the other side. So it's important that we seek which teachings are the frameworks and which teachings are basically the content to be put into that framework. And if we understand the distinction, then we can get the most out of the, out of the teachings. And then finally, the other important lesson that we learned in the course of this, I hope, today, which is that the questions you ask yourself why you are practicing are going to be important. You don't just do as you're told. You've probably heard you know, heedfulness, or the word apamada, defined as diligence. You know, work out your salvation with diligence. It's not just busyness. It's learning how to realize, my actions do make a difference. I've got to look at the results of my actions and get my act together, clean up my act. And that's the way you get to the other side. Okay. So you ask the questions of, what am I doing? What are the results? As opposed to, who am I? Where am I? Kind of like the amnesiac's questions, who am I? Where am I? <laughs> that's not what the Buddha is teaching. He said, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> Why am I doing this? Isn't there some other way I can act that would be better than this? And those are the questions that actually get you somewhere in the path. So that's the introduction to today. Do you have any questions? <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Um, first question I have is uh, with regard to um, the occasions in the suttas where the Buddha teaches the, um, the sort of process of going through the three characteristics, or what's later called the three characteristics, as a, an insight process. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if... Um, it may be suggested that those fit somewhere within the process of the Four Noble Truths? Exactly. Okay. They fit within the point where you are trying to develop dispassion for the, source, for the origination of suffering. And the Buddha talks about sort of the five stages of insight. One is seeing something, the origination of something, how it, how it arises, what causes it. Secondly, seeing it passing away. Third question is looking at the allure. Why are you attracted to this? This is a part of the insight which often gets kind of sloughed over, but it's probably one of the most important parts is, you know, you're, you're doing something, you know it's unskillful, why do you like to do it? And part of you say, I don't like to do this, I hate this about myself. But then, okay, there's part of you that actually enjoys it. So you have to look and see what that, what is the allure there. And then finally, what are the drawbacks? And this is where the Buddha brings in these questions. And he doesn't call them three characteristics. This is another useful part of having a canon on a CD-ROM. Type in three characteristics and not, it doesn't show up in the major suttas. What he does call them is three perceptions. There's a perception of not-self, there's a perception of impermanence and the perception of or inconstancy and the perception of stress and suffering. And you apply those perceptions to the things that you are attracted to, that you know are unskillful, until you finally say, yeah, the, these drawbacks really are not worth doing this, not worth holding on. So this is how the three perceptions fit within the Four Noble Truths. Trying to develop, because you look at the first noble truth, you're trying to comprehend something to the point of dispassion. The second noble truth, you're trying to develop dispassion for the causes of suffering. Three, the third noble truth is dispassion itself. No, the fourth noble truth, and this is, where, this is why it makes a difference, you have to have a passion to develop the path until it's fully developed, and then you develop dispassion for that. And so when you're 
So in the beginning stages, you will apply to the three perceptions to things that would pull you away from the path. For instance, with the things that would pull you away from your virtue, the Buddha says, look at the things, the reasons you might say, well, I've got to kill, I've got to steal, I've got to lie. And then you look at the reasons why you might do that, and you realize, okay, these things are not worth it. You see the inconstant, stressful, not self. In terms of concentration, you're trying to focus on the breath, and all of a sudden you're thinking about the pizza you're going to have this afternoon. You say, look, pizzas are in constant stress while not selling. <laughs> and the same with anything that would get in the way of discernment. And then only when all those three parts of the path have done their work, then you turn the three perceptions onto those two. Virtue, concentration, virtue, concentration and discernment. Would you would you be also willing to make a comment about the um, the, the image you used about um, the waves at the beach? Mm-hmm. Um, and there there seems to be an experience where um, uh, there's a certain sort of release of clinging that happens as the sort of unpleasant waves come and the pleasant waves come and not interacting with them. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how can we account for that or talk about that? In the, the what are you holding on to in the meantime? Excuse me. What are you holding on to in the meantime as you're noticing those things? Hopefully less and less. No, you're going to be holding on to something. Holding on to the act of discernment, holding on to your concentration, something in there. To let you let go of those waves, you've got to hold on to something else. In, and the, in the path, basically. And so the, the pointing would be let, uh, t- turning the discernment on itself at a certain point. Eventually, but first you use the discernment, and as you, it's like with any tool as you're using it, you've got to hold on. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for questions. Question over here. <clears throat> Actually, this is a more of a personal request. Um, I'm finding um, what you are teaching quite interesting and intriguing, and I'm really struggling with um, really hearing you well mm-hmm. in the... Uh, <clears throat> The, the the rate of the speech it feels very fast, and so even when I was being guided, I found the guiding like I really wanted to hear and really catch what you were teaching in the guided meditation, and the, and it, I could not capture it, okay, and it, I find myself I'll, in that kind of way right now, and so I'm feeling a little bit stressed. Okay, I'll slow down. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is a 500-page book, and we've got to get it in one day. Right? Oh, oh, I'm so glad I asked that question. <laughs> There's an urgency to teach us much. Okay, 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 I'm sorry. I will slow down. That will help. <laughs> Hi. On the first page of the handout, there's a... A passage about someone asking about the consequences of doing one what ought not to do mm-hmm. or the consequences of one doing one what ought to do. Mm-hmm. And in both, there's a reference to the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what you, if you have any personal opinion about what the Buddha may or, or may not have taught regarding such a thing as the pleasant realm or the unpleasant realm Mm -hmm. during his lifetime. 
Well, he said he couldn't bring them out and show them to you. He said they were good. They were a good assumption to make that you will be born after 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 death again. As long as he said, as long as the process of becoming is not stopped in the mind, and death doesn't stop it, there's going to be more more birth. Um, I like to think of it as a good working hypothesis. You know, at the point of stream entry, you see that it's true that you may not remember the details of previous lifetimes, but you do see that this was, you know, the year you were born was not the beginning of your experience, and that it's not going to end until you've ended the process of further becoming. So it's a good, and, 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 and until that time, you take it as a working hypothesis. And how does that concept of you fit with anatta? Okay, again, the Buddha did not say there is no self, but he just said there is a process of becoming that continues, where you cling, clinging is enough to keep you going. A sense, a sense of identity continues. What we'll get later, and then with the question about is there a self, is there no self, that's one of the ones the Buddha put aside. Yes. I really resonated with the uh, questions to put aside. <laughs> Those seem like most of the unskillful, unfocused questions throughout my day. And I'm wondering what practical advice you have about allowing the mind to put them aside, um, not during meditation, but during daily life. Questions you ask yourself or questions other people ask you? Questions I ask myself. Okay. That well, just say, look, I don't need to know. <laughs> it takes a huge load off of your mind. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. It was like when I was a junior monk. You know, I, I came from a college where you expected to know everything, <laughs> and I found that being a junior monk, I could say, "Don't ask me. Ask a John Fuhrer." <laughs> Life was a lot easier back in those days. <laughs> But it's important that you learn how to recognize the questions that really don't, they just keep you spinning your wheels. Thank you. Ajahn, if a question is a puzzle piece, you kind of already have to know what it looks like before you could ask the question, yeah? Like, mm. sorry, if a question is a puzzle piece, you have to know what it looks like before you could ask the question, but the point of a question is to clarify what's unclear, so it seems like you're kind of caught in a bit of a catch-22 there, because you have okay, to well, know what you're wanting before you even, be, but you're asking for it as well, so how do you... In a case like that, you, you try, and if that, see, this puzzle, does, this puzzle does not work, then you throw it away. That's part of the cross-questioning, is you look at your questions as a kind of karma. Mm-hmm. If I, when I'm asking this question, does it lead me to, in a direction? And you, in, the, in the Buddha's own case, he found that he was, you know, you know six years of self-torture, he found that, hmm, this is not working. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes back, he said, okay, what was the question? It's like that, you know, Gertrude Stein's last words. You know, all of literary Paris was gathered around her bed as she was dying. At one point, she lifts up her head and she says, what is the answer? <laughs> Puts head back down. And everybody's sitting around, I don't know. 
And then just before she dies, she lifts her head up and says, well, what was the question? (laughs) (laughs) And so sometimes it takes a while to realize, okay, I've been asking this question. The wrong, I've been asking the wrong question. Um, Two cases immediately come to mind. One was John Fuang was telling me that when he was a younger monk, he had these tremendously bad headaches chronically. And he was trying all kinds of medicines. He was Chinese medicine, and Western medicine, and Thai medicine, and nothing was working. And it got so bad that they had to have some couple of monks in his room at night to sort of help look after him if he woke up you know, in the middle of the night with a lot of pain. And one night he woke up and the two monks were asleep. <laughs> and he, his first question was, who's actually looking after whom here? Um, <laughs> and then he said, well, wait a minute, let's, as, long as, as long as I'm up, I might as well meditate. And I finally realized, hey, I've been trying to get rid of the suffering without comprehending it. Hmm. And so he said, okay, wrong duty. Turn around. So, and then he said he got some of his best insights hmm. by asking the right questions. So it takes a while to sometimes to realize I'm asking the wrong questions. But this, hopefully today's <laughs> day long will help sort some of those things out. Anything else? Yes. That was a lot of information that you gave. <laughs> so, um, There's a uh, metta question, mm-hmm. M-E-T-A, and then um, another question mm-hmm. in relation to that. It's, it seems like a, a person can go in two, one of two basic directions, say, with the teachings. Um, the first is, uh, was the Buddha right? Uh, is Buddha, what is Buddhism, and compare that to other religions and other questions and um, spend a lot of time just sort of spinning mm-hmm. um, with those questions and never necessarily even moving into what the Buddha was teaching. Mm-hmm. Or you can do the assumption saying, I'm going to, say, have faith that the Buddha knew something, that he discovered something, and uh, he was consummate in teaching that, and just that. And I'm going to take my place where I am and try to figure out what hindrances are in this mind until I get to that point and say, I I believe there is that end. And um, can you comment on just that kind of... Okay, there's a third alternative, which is the Buddha sounds intriguing. Let's give him a fair, ch- give him a fair, fair chance. Give him a try. And what's going to be required by giving him a try, and which is going to demand a lot out of you. But in the course of being, doing what he said would put you in a position to test whether or not his teachings were true. <clears throat> you develop nothing but good qualities: mindfulness, alertness, compassion, goodwill. Is there anything wrong with those? <laughs> it's okay. I, I don't know for sure. And he wants you to be clear about what you don't know. He's not saying, I, you know, like, I believe the Buddha is my personal Lord and Savior. Um, that, that's not the kind of attitude he wants. But he says, okay, to prove him wrong, 
you have to develop certain qualities before you'd be in a position to say yes or no. And given the fact that he's promising that it is possible through your own efforts to find an end to suffering, are you intrigued? Do you feel that it's a challenge that you would like to take on? That's your choice. So you don't have to say, okay, I have absolute faith in the Buddha to begin with, but you say, this sounds intriguing, it sounds reasonable. Let's do what needs to be done in order to prove him right or wrong. So that's my second question. In, in taking that approach, um, there are sort of a couple avenues. I can learn all that I, I can do. I can put all my effort into understanding all of these teachings in the canon and still maybe not get out of my suffering or um, simplify that to, say, these Four Noble Truths of for today or for this moment, where is the suffering? And that may mean I, I don't know, understand a lot of the Buddhist teachings, but I st- it still seems to be a more direct shot to realizing the end of suffering. What do you think the answer is to that? <laughs> well, so, so the, then the question within that is, then um, how am I going to understand how to create the best questions? I mean, I know that is, is the, the approach that we're, we're leading towards today, but what the confusion lies in, um, you're presenting like the Buddhist teachings that we have after the fact, but he wasn't teaching like a group of people he wasn't saying, oh, here is my teachings, you learn all my teachings, and you'll find the end of suffering. He was directing his questioning and dialoguing with particular people for particular moments. So it's really that I have to learn to, to do the same. I'm, I'm not learning Buddhism, I'm learning how do I know to answer or ask the Correct questions for me. Yeah. Well, it's this is why he labeled some of his teachings categorical. In other words, true across the board for everybody. These are the frameworks. And then your your question would be, how does that a framework apply to me right now? You keep in mind you have the four noble truths, the duties appropriate to each truth. And then if you're coming up with questions, you could ask yourself, does this fit within that framework, or does it not? And he's given you some examples of questions that don't. Both through it, the ones where he has to rephrase the question, and then the other questions where he puts them aside. And that, that's his way of giving you some examples. So in Ajahn Fong's case, he was still always directing towards the Four Noble Truths and the End of Suffering. Right. The, so he... He was. He said, "I was asking the wrong question." Meaning, say, I was I, doing the wrong duty. I was. I was trying I, to get I, rid of the pain, I was trying to but get not rid of the suffering without comprehending it. <clears throat> so he still kept to to that simple framework. Right. In fact, the more you can keep it to that simple framework, the more likely you are to get the right answer. Okay. I guess. Lastly, it just seems 
over the course of time that um, the teachings are much simpler in ending the suffering than in understanding the Buddhist teachings. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, but, I mean, when I went to see a John Fung, his message to me was the message that all the monks we get in the forest tradition or the wilderness tradition, which is whatever you've learned from the Pali Canon, put it aside for the time being. Let's focus on what you have to do right here, right now. And then when you're doing something, the knowledge will come. In other words, the things you've read, you begin to say, oh, this applies there, that applies here. It's, it's, we're learning a skill. And as you know, with any skill, you know, you can write volumes about it, but still not have the skill. And so to put it within the context, I'm learning, one of the skills I need to learn is how to ask a good question. Also, how do I get my mind to settle down? Basic stuff. Okay, so um, it's getting a little theoretical for me, so I wanted to bring it to something concrete and Mm -hmm. see if you can help me. Mm -hmm. So yesterday um, afternoon, um, I'm starting, I'm working at my desk and I'm starting to feel off, like, um, I don't know, I feel off. So my first reflex is to go eat a banana. (laughs) Okay, I eat a banana, I come back to my desk, and I'm still feeling off, of course. Then I go eat an apple. It doesn't help. At that point, I'm realizing that that's not helpful. And I'm asking then the question, why am I feeling off? But I keep asking that question, and it doesn't lead me anywhere. So is this a wrong question? Is there a more skillful question that can help me understand what is off mm-hmm. at that moment? You might want to break it down to be a little bit more precise about, well, what is off? Is it a physical feeling or is it a mental feeling? Mm-hmm. And then if it's okay, a physical it's mental. Feeling, it's mental. Okay. But then you, sometimes you can attack it from the physical side. How am I breathing right now? Mm. Can I change the way I breathe without having an effect on how I'm feeling? And then the second question is, okay, what did somebody just say to me right now? Or is there some memory that's coming up right now that's disturbing me? And how am I dealing with that? So you can attack it from either side, which is the physical side or the mental side. Yeah, I mean, I tried to meditate. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was fine, but after I finished meditating, <laughs> I just went back to off the again. same stage. Okay, yes. Then, then in that case, there must be something, you know, some issue from the day or some issue from some previous day, which is beginning to bubble up in your mind. Yeah. So I mean, this morning, waking up after meditating, I got clarity. But I, I'm because of the topic of today, mm-hmm. I'm just curious: was there something? a better, more skillful question that I could have asked to not feel off for like, you know, the whole rest of the day. Well, I'd say, I'd say try to break it down into... Break it down. Into physical, mental, 
Mm-hmm. You've already tried. You've already tried the food cure. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's not working. <laughs> no, it's not working. No. <laughs> and then you tried the breath cure. <laughs> yeah. And I took a walk. I mean, I really tried, you yeah. know. But uh, I feel that mentally, like if I go the mental path, I I I couldn't ask the question that would lead me there. Mm-hmm. So, are you advising? To go the physical route? I'd say go the physical route to say at least even though my something is bothering my mind, I can at least not let it hijack my breath, the mm. way I'm breathing. Mm. And so I can feel physically okay, so I can finish my job for today. Mm. Maybe the office is not the ideal place to sit and meditate and solve that particular problem, but at least I can do the temporary cure, get through the day, and then go home and say, okay, now that I'm home, I have time to look into this, see what the issue is. Mm. So try, try the breath as a band-aid. <laughs> okay, thank you. Tanjan, <laughs> uh, the question is, uh, there's one uh, passage where we talk about uh, um, thinking of all the unskillful things that we could be doing or what, what all unskillful things we, that we are having craving for and thinking of them in terms of uh, Inconstancy, stressfulness, and and uh, uh, not self. Um, but there are the skillful. So we're trying to also uh, make the the skillful things more constant, mm-hmm. more easeful, easeful and under control, and more under our control. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, so it's the uh, exact opposite of these three perceptions mm-hmm. over there that said in the uh, the 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 sutta on the not self the anatta lakkhana sutta the buddha goes on to say that all forms whether they are subtle or gross near or far all forms mm-hmm. are to be seen as not self are to be seen as not self who is he talking to? Right. He's <laughs> that's that's the thing that that keeps uh, uh, that I'm thinking about. Maybe this is a message only for those people who have already attained streamentry or, or before or beyond. This this is a teaching that he gives to people who are about to become arahants. Oh, to become arahants. Mm-hmm. Okay, so very very close. Mm-hmm. So this is not the kind of way of thinking. Uh, the thinking that. Everything, uh, all form, all aggregates. That's when is, you're going to put the path down. Yes. Okay. So that's for much later. Until then, in other words, that for these questions, like what is skillful, what is what is skillful, um, we look at that in terms of uh, how can I grasp it, how can I hold it, and for those things that are unskillful, how can I get away with it, get, get away from that, avoid it. Uh, the tentative answers keep changing as we move along and the initial tentative answers would be probably uh, virtue I want to hold on to it mm-hmm. and then as you go on it seems like there's a point where you even don't need to hold on to virtue it's, it becomes automatic it becomes automatic okay it's like being a carpenter and when you are, are building something you write pencil marks all over it right right second nature essentially and then when, when, when you're about to be finished, then you erase the pencil marks. 
how is that automatic? You're, you know, suppose you're going to be building a chair. You need to know where do I cut the wood. So you put a pencil mark on the wood. Ah. Uh. And then before the chair is finished, you erase, you erase all the pencil all marks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there are different stages in the skill. It's like the raft. You hold on to the raft. So that's what you said about doing an action and then destroying the seed for that action? Is that? That's, that's something else. That's something completely different. Yeah. Okay. 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 Can we move on? Otherwise. Although I have found, you know, I make a phone call and I leave a message and they say, are you there? <laughs> they don't pick up this range. <clears throat> okay. I, I have one question. Sure. Mm-hmm. M- much of our suffering goes back to childhood mm-hmm. and the things that had happened. And I'm having difficulty in overcoming those things because I've been studying Buddhism for seven years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I'm going to go see, you know, psychotherapists. Mm-hmm. Uh, when do uh, you go to see a psychotherapist when the Buddhist teachings aren't helping you? You know, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It, it's it's difficult because I, I love uh, everything that I read, especially your books. Uh, but I only get so far. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that sometimes you have to... Dig up some things as to about you know what it, what is the allure of a particular metal pattern that you've got, and to understand the allure, you have to go. Sometimes you do have to go back and say, well, when did I start doing this? Why did I do it? Why did it make sense then? And why am I holding on to it now? But make sure you get a good therapist, <laughs> one who's you know friendly to the Dharma. Okay. A few, few words about categorical questions. Where are we here? Okay, as I said, there are two teachings that the Buddha declared to be categorical. One is the question of skillful actions should be developed, unskillful actions should be abandoned. This is essentially right view, mundane right view. And then there's transcendent right view, which is the Four Noble Truths, together with their duties. So in each case, it's not just a truth dividing up your experience into different categories, but also saying, once you've divided it up, this is what you do with the different categories. The duties for the Four Noble Truths, again, are that you try to comprehend the suffering or stress, try to abandon the cause, you try to realize the cessation, and you try to develop the path. So both categorical teachings focus on actions, what what should be done, what should not be done. Remember, this is part of the teacher's duty, is to give you a sense of, it does make a difference what you do, and then here's how you try to figure out what should be done, what should not be done. Years back I was sitting on a a course being taught by another teacher on the the Karnaniya Metta Sutta, and the first line is, this is what should be done by someone who aims at a state of peace. Question in the back. I thought Buddhism didn't have any shoulds. <laughs> and the poor teacher was spent the whole morning trying to explain. The Buddhist shoulds are conditional on your wanting to put an end of suffering. 
If you want to put an end of suffering, this is what you got to do. If you don't want to put an end of suffering, you can do anything you want. <laughs> but if you do, this is what has to be done. Okay, implicit in all this is the teachings on karma, that your actions do make a difference. And that what you experience in the present moment is not totally determined by past actions, it is also determined by actions you're doing right now. In fact, that is the primary suffering, what comes from your current actions. If there was no freedom of choice within the limits of the choices that are available through your, through your past actions, if there was no pattern to causality, there are no grounds for deciding what should and shouldn't be done. As the Buddha said, that would leave you bewildered and without protection. In other words, you're back where you began with suffering. You're bewildered by it still. Okay. So the Buddha offers his teachings not as a, you know, a system of picture of reality. It's more a path of practice to be followed to a particular end. He doesn't try to provide a vocabulary of ultimate truths. Instead, he says he's focusing on a goal. Um, when they talk about ultimate truth, sometimes in the commentaries they use the word paramatta, which means either foremost goal or foremost meaning. In the early suttas, it means foremost goal. In other words, this is where you're trying to go. So his teachings, are, you know, like his images for his teachings, are like the raft that takes you across the river, or the relay chariots that get you from one city to another. And again, you use them to get to a certain point, and then you let them go. So the whole purpose of the teachings is to be used. Okay. Now when the Buddha phrases things in terms of mundane right view, in terms of skillful and unskillful actions, as opposed to the Four Noble Truths, there's no radical difference between the two. It's simply that in terms of mundane right view you're talking about you as an agent doing actions and receiving the action, results of those actions, talking about you as a being, and places where beings go. So they're discussing things in terms of becoming. When you get to the Four Noble Truths, those terms get dropped. We're not concerned about who you are or where you're going, simply looking at what, what the mind is doing to create suffering. Okay. And this way we get away from objectification. The, the Pali word that I'm translating as objectification is babancha. Sometimes you hear as, you know, your thinking run riot. Your thinking proliferates. Actually, for the Buddha, it's a type of thinking. It depends on how you frame things. If you frame things in terms of, I am the thinker, then once you are the thinker, then you've got, well, who am I? What do I feed on in order to maintain my identity? And framing things in those terms just puts you more and more into more and more becoming. So the Buddha is basically saying with the Four Noble Truths, to try to get away from that particular way of framing the issue. Simply look at, there are these actions, they get these results. And look at it purely in terms of actions and results. What this means is there's room for varying instructions at varying levels of the practice, like we talked about just now. When you apply the perception of inconstancy to something and when you don't. And Balaji's example is precisely the example that John Lee gives, which is that when you're doing concentration, you do not focus on inconstancy, stress, and not self, with the concentration itself. You're trying to make it constant, you're trying to make it easeful, you're trying to get it under your control. And one of the best ways of testing something is to push against it and see how far you can go with that. So let's look, look at some of the examples of the teachings that the Buddha gives categorical answers to. The first one passage, uh, these numbers here are 
the numbers that these passages have in the book, Skill and Questions. We're on page one. So we're looking at passage number 21 on page one. <laughs> okay. So one of the hierarchical teachings is that bodily misconduct, verbal misconduct, and mental misconduct should not be done. Now there are other places where the Buddha defines those terms. Bodily misconduct is basically killing, stealing, having illicit sex. Verbal misconduct is lying, intentionally lying, um, intentionally speaking in a way to divide people. In other words, you see X is becoming friends with Y and you feel you, know, you don't like that friendship developing, so you do what you can. You tell them the truth. It's not slander. Sometimes this is translated as slander, but it's not. You actually tell the truth. You, know, you, tell, you tell Y the truth about X <laughs> in ways to make them break apart. That is unskillful. That is verbal misconduct. Third one is harsh speech. In other words, you say things to make pe hurt people's feelings, and that's the only intention you have, is just basically you want to hurt their feelings. And then finally, idle chatter. In other words, you open your mouth and you don't know what's going to come out. <laughs> or there's no clear intention about what you're saying. <laughs> um, all of this would come under verbal misconduct. Now, of these four, you'll notice that the Buddha has a precept only against the first one, lying. Because there are occasions when, with divisive speech, you know, see, you know, X is becoming friendly with Y, Y is known to be a sexual predator, you might want to warn X. In other words, you have X's you know, genuine well-being in mind. So that, technically that would count as divisive speech, but it, is, it can actually be skillful in some cases. Um, in terms of harsh speech, there's sometimes when people don't listen to you if you speak kindly. <laughs> and so you have to say something strong. But again, you have to be really clear about your intention. And then, as far as idle chatter goes, if we had a precept against idle chatter, <laughs> it would be humanly impossible. <laughs> so, so I mean, which comes up with the question that you're, you're at work, there's a certain amount of social grease that needs to be done in order to keep the workplace going. Your question will then be, Exactly how much grease do you apply? And how much grease is going to start mucking up the, the engine? So those, those three areas, you, you have to use your discernment. Then finally, with mental misconduct, that would be one, inordinate greed. In other words, greedy for something that would require that you break your precepts in order to get it. Ill will, wanting to see somebody suffer. And then wrong view, which is not believing in in, in, the, in the basic principles of karma, rebirth, um, the, the value of generosity, the value of gratitude, these kinds of things. Do you have any questions about those forms of misconduct? Yes, question in the back. Get the mic back in the back. Um, I've been watching some um, some videos showing a special education teacher interacting mostly with children, and it seems like the children love when you lie to them about things like you say, "Oh, the the adult says something like, "Oh, well, 
I don't see that over there, and the child sees it. Um, and the child is made to feel smarter, or or lying and saying, uh, you know, a lot of joking things. Kids kids love that, mm-hmm. and it seems like if you insisted on truth with children, they would be angry at you. So wow. I'm wondering if that it's not idle chatter. It's not exactly social grease, although it seems kind of like in that category, but playful joking, you know, with a child where it's like the intention is play, mm-hmm. does that come under a different category than lying? Nope. <laughs> Which means that we have to please children without lying to them. <laughs> a really skillful teacher would be able to... to have a sense of humor without lying. Okay, thank you. Because otherwise, then we get politicians lying to us as a joke. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we, we get that anyway. But Verbal misconduct, bodily misconduct, mental misconduct. Okay. Okay. And then what are the results of indulging in verbal misconduct, or these different kinds of misconduct? You can fault yourself. You can think back on what you did and you regret it. Observant people on close examination can criticize you. Your bad reputation gets spread around as so-and-so is a liar. You die confused. And on the break of the body, you go to a bad place. Now, there's another place where the Buddha says, there are times, however, when you engage in misconduct in this lifetime and in the next lifetime, you go to a good place. He says, that's because you've got a lot of good karma in the past. (laughs) But that eventually the results of your misconduct will come maybe in a lifetime beyond that. So karma is not quite as simple as... We sometimes are led to believe. Okay. The other categorical teaching in this one is I say that good bodily conduct, good verbal conduct, and good mental conduct should be done. And the rewards are you don't fault yourself, observant people praise you, your good reputation gets spread around, you die unconfused. I have a relative who was dying and he, was, he had mistreated his wife. And as he was dying, all I could think about was how much he regretted he had mistreated his wife. And as a result, he went, got dementia. Because he, like, he didn't like thinking about the future, i.e. he knew he was dying. He didn't like thinking about the past. And he didn't know what to do in the present moment. And so he died confused. So, And you go to a good destination. Okay. Any questions on that passage? This passage 43 is the passage of leading to discernment. As I said, you visit a contemplative or Brahmin, and here contemplative or Brahmin means someone who's really advanced on the path. And you ask this person, what is skillful, what is unskillful, what is blameworthy, what is blameless? What should be cultivated, what should not be cultivated? In other words, what should be done? In its various ways of expressing it. 
And then what having been done by me will be my long-term harm and suffering. What having been done by me will be my long-term welfare and happiness. As I was saying earlier, a lot of people said this is just too obvious. In fact, there's a British translator of the Dhammapada who translated the verse that goes, if you see that there is a greater happiness that comes from abandoning a lesser happiness, the wise person will abandon the lesser happiness for the sake of the greater happiness. And in a footnote, the translator said, this could not possibly be the meaning of this passage. It's way too obvious. Well, it may be obvious, but it's not how we live our lives. All too often we go for the short-term fix. So wisdom lies in looking for the long-term. Back when I was a young monk, I was taking the Dharma exams in Thailand. And I mean, it was hard enough having to take the exams in Thai. But what made it harder is there was one, one of the exams was you had to write a little Dharma talk. And they would give you a, a phrase from the Buddhist teachings, and you would have to basically give a little explanation of that. And then you would have to bring in another quote from the Buddha that was relevant to the topic, and then tie it all up. And in the first year you bring in one quote, second year you bring in two quotes, third year you bring in three quotes. And they had a little booklet of quotes from the Buddha that you were expected to memorize. And all the little novices were going, ma, 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 memorizing things, page after page after page of the stuff. And I realized, this is not my forte. <laughs> and so I said, what I've got to do is figure out, okay, what are three quotes that I could use in any circumstance? <laughs> no matter what the topic is. <laughs> And so one of the ones I chose was that one of it. And if you see a, foresee a greater happiness that comes from le- forsaking a lesser happiness, you choose the greater happiness. That got me through three years of exams. <laughs> uh, so, good principle. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then finally here, the one on categorical. is a discussion with Potabata, where the Buddha talks about questions he did not declare and questions that he did declare. The things that he did not declare, which are not categorical, one is the cosmos is eternal, the cosmos is not eternal, the cosmos is infinite, the cosmos is finite, the body and soul are the same, the body is one thing, the soul is one thing, the body another. After death, a Tathagata exists, after death, a Tathagata, that means a person who has gained full awakening. After death, a Tathagata does not exist, both exist and does not exist. After death, neither exists nor does not exist. These are things the Buddha just did not get involved with. These are the hot philosophical issues of the day. People would come to the Buddha and they'd give him this list. Okay, where did you stand on this? You know, it would be like today going down some sort of political issue and saying, where did you stand on? You know, everybody's supposed to supposed to have an opinion about certain things. Um, and the Buddha said, I don't take opinions. I don't take a stance on any of these. And some people got upset. You know, You're not teaching anything. So no, I teach what's skillful and what's not skillful. That's the distinction. Which it goes on to, to later. That question about whether the Tathagata exists or does not exist, a lot of that has to do with when you define a being, a being is defined by his or her attachments. It's where you're hanging on, that that's what defines you. As I said earlier, the Buddha never said there are no beings. He said there are beings, they're defined by where they're attached. Whereas when you gain awakening, you're not attached anywhere, so you cannot be defined. Because you can't be defined, you can't be described. 
If the Buddha said there was no being, then when an awakened person passed away, you just said the being doesn't exist. Didn't exist to begin with, doesn't exist after death. But the Buddha, Buddha was very careful always to say he never took that position. It's always, you cannot describe the Tathagata, you cannot describe an awakened being because this being has not defined him or herself around a particular attachment. Any questions about those positions that the Buddha did not take? We'll get back to this topic later on when he starts explaining why he did not take those positions. But if you have any questions about any of them right now. Okay. What he did declare, okay, this is stress or suffering, that the word is dukkha. I choose to translate it as stress for three reasons. One is I had a friend in Thailand who was a journalist. He says, why does Buddhism talk about suffering so much? I don't have any suffering in my life. I said, do you have any stress? Oh, yeah, lots of stress. I said, That's what we're talking about. <laughs> Secondly, it's um, when you get to very refined states of concentration, it's hard to say there's suffering there, but you can say there is stress in the concentration. And that's going to be a point where you have to if you're going to let go of the path, you have to see that. And the third one is that it's very hard to romanticize stress. You can romanticize your suffering. In fact, we have so much of that. But you come home from work and, boy, I had a lot of stress today. It's, it's hard. To, you can't imagine a song about, boy, was I stressed out today. <laughs> so you, this is stress. This is the origination of stress. This is the cessation, and this is the path leading to the cessation. And then he goes out and he declares, he defines these in very precise terms. These are categorical teachings. And he says, the reason I say this is because they do lead to disenchantment, they do lead to dispassion, to cessation, to calm, to direct knowledge, and to self-awakening, and to unbinding. That's why he declares these teachings. There's another passage where he talks about how during his awakening he learned many, many things that he's never described or talked about in comparison to the leaves in the forest as opposed to the leaves he had in his hand. What he taught was the leaves in his hand. What he gained awakening to was like the leaves in the forest. And he says, because if I taught about that, it wouldn't serve any purpose. This is the teaching that serves a purpose. So these are the kinds of questions that the Buddha would have you, as you say, look at. What am I doing? Is it the kind of action I'm doing right now, should I continue doing this or should I stop? He's coming from the position of seeing the mind as basically proactive. We're not sitting here with experience suddenly kind of being presented to us. We're out there looking for certain things. When you look at dependent co-arising, this, this list of the teachings on the steps that lead to suffering. And sensory contact, you know, your engagement with the world, comes halfway through the list. The message is that there's a lot of stuff you're doing prior even to the fact that a sight hits you or a sound comes to you. You're already priming yourself either to suffer or not to suffer based on how your mind is going out. And so what we need in, in an instruction, this is one of the reasons why the Buddha said a teacher's duty is to give you a sense of what to do and what not to do, is we need to learn how to prime ourselves in a way that we're not going to suffer from whatever comes up. Because we're primarily active, so we need instructions on how to act. 
so we don't have to keep reinventing the Dharma wheel every time we make a decision. So, so this is why he says, okay, this origination of stress is a kind of action. It's a kind of mental action, clinging, craving. The path is also a kind of mental action. You know, there are perceptions, there are fabrications that go into making the path. These are instructions of what we should do so that we can prime ourselves so that when we engage in the world, we're not going to have to suffer from, from our engagement. And we can then even go beyond that. So that's why the Buddha taught these things. And these are why these are his categorical issues. Any questions on the categorical teachings? Uh, uh, thank you for talking about the. Um, oh, sorry, I'm over here. Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you for sharing um, the categorical um, answers. Um, mm -hmm. So, I f uh, my perception is that even within this categorical category. Mm -hmm. There seems to be many shades of gray, and it um, seems to be about purifying intentions and figuring out whether um, one's action is skillful or not over time. Mm -hmm. um, so I can see that as one descends along the path, you would see maybe retrospectively that wasn't a skillful action. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, what, um, what would you say is the feedback loop of knowing whether... Um, because I can see I can go into over-analysis. I'm like, wait, you know, maybe this thing in the past I wasn't most skillful. But I was wondering, is it just through um, meditation, trying to um, follow the uh, Noble Eightfold Path, that one would then seek more clearly um, what would be the right, in, right action at the time and to retrospectively evaluate whether that was the skillful thing to do or not or whether this is like over-analysis, don't think so much about the past and it's more about um, future actions. How are you going to learn if you don't think about the past? Okay, so... Yeah. And the question mm -hmm. is, how do you do this best? Right, exactly. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with the Buddha's instructions to his son, Rahula, uh, where he comes to see Rahula one day, and, and the commentary tells us that Rahula was seven years old at the time. Mm -hmm. And you get the impression that Rahula probably told a lie that day. Because <laughs> the first issue the Buddha brings up is, you know, if you tell it, a, a person who tells an intentional lie with no sense of shame, there's no good to them. And he has this dipper of water that the, this Rahula had set out this basin of water with a dipper for him to wash his feet. So he has this dipper of water, and there's just a little bit of water left in the dipper after he's washed his feet. Mm -hmm. And so he says, see how little water there is in this dipper? Yeah. That's how little goodness there is in someone who tells a deliberate lie with no sense of shame. <laughs> and, see, and then he throws it away. See, see how that water was thrown away? Mm -hmm. That's what happens to the goodness of a person who tells a deliberate lie with no sense of shame, gets thrown away. And then he turns it over. See how it's turned over? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See how empty it is? Yeah. Get the message. And then he goes on. Once he's established the principle, it's good to be truthful. Not only to yourself, but also, not only with other people, but also to yourself. And then he says, look at your actions as you would look at yourself in a mirror. He says, before you do something, ask yourself, this, intention, this act that I intend to do, what results do I expect? And if you expect harm, you don't do it. If you don't expect harm, you can go ahead and do it. While you're doing it, you look for the results that come out. If you don't see any harm, continue. If you do see harm, stop. Mm -hmm. And then when the action is done, look again. Over the long term, what were the results? And if you saw that you did not cause any harm, he said, take joy in the fact that you're getting better on the path. Mm 
if you did cause harm, resolve, I'm not going to repeat that mistake, and you go talk it over with someone who's more advanced on the path. So it's not just you stewing about your actions, but you get some advice. Mm -hmm. And also you learn how not to be afraid to go to somebody for advice, say, look, I made this mistake. And then you resolve, okay, I'm not going to repeat it. So this is, this is how you learn from your mistakes. You try not to make those mistakes. And, and with the worst mistakes, the ones that are hardest to admit to yourself, is you knew you were going to make a mistake as you went into it. Because <laughs> then you start lying to yourself about, well, it doesn't really matter. I didn't really do it. Um, they deserved it anyhow. Um, they don't matter. That kind of, that kind of thing. But if you try to act on your best intentions, and then you realize, okay, it was an honest intention, but I, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to admit the mistake. Mm-hmm. And so in this way you learn compassion for yourself, compassion for others, you learn to be honest. Mm-hmm. A lot of good qualities come from learning how to look at your actions this way. And, but the important thing is to learn how to live with the fact that, okay, I have made mistakes, mm-hmm. but I don't have to repeat them. Thank you. Okay. Is there something wrong? You want to get the crackle? The crackle out of the. Well, it's. It, it, is the battery running out? No, it's a microphone. Okay. Oops. Tanjan, uh, is there a relationship between. I'm finding it hard to see the relationship between stress and clinging because. Dukkha is defined as clinging. Mm-hmm. So, I sometimes see clinging, I, maybe in, I picture it in my mind as repeatedly doing the same thing or getting stuck on something because you just cannot have, you just can't pull yourself away from it, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of doing the same thing or ad- getting addicted to something. Yeah. So, that's how I think of clinging. But maybe I'm not, uh, and that picture does not seem to uh, correlate with stress or okay. suffering. It's so basically, the Buddha defines me, right? Does this work now? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Basically, the Buddha defines clinging as a kind of feeding, and you find yourself feeding off of something, and being in the position where you have to feed is inherently stressful. You know, I can't live without X. Or I have to depend on X. That's a stressful position to be in. It's obvious when, you know, X is something impermanent that it's going to change and you have to keep looking for new things. But even, you know, at the the moment of awakening, if you try to grab on to the deathless, just the fact that you're in that position of trying to feed, it's a stressful position. So we feed off of certain actions, we get a certain satisfaction about acting in a certain way. You know, the Buddha defines clinging in terms of you know, clinging to sensuality, that you like fantasizing about your sensual pleasures, um, that you have certain ways of habits and practices that you just have to keep doing again and again and again. I mean, the extreme examples, of course, are com- you know, obsessive-compulsive disorder. But all of us have a little bit of compulsion, that we have to do X a certain way. And that becomes something that we're relying on for our satisfaction, and it's going to be a problem. 
I mean, there was a teacher I heard one time say that he wouldn't want to live in a world where there was no suffering because he couldn't exercise his compassion. Which sounds kind of noble, but then you're beginning to realize, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Again, he's got he's, he's compulsion. You have compulsion around being compassionate. So we can cling even to good things. And there's suffering there. So uh, it seemed like when you're saying it's almost like feeding, mm -hmm. it's um, because of a sense of uh, incompleteness, a sense of hunger. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, okay, that's the craving. That's the craving. Well, that's the clinging and the craving. Okay. The hunger and the need to satisfy the hunger. Sometimes, in, in some uh, talks or by many people, clinging and craving seem to be getting confused or they're used as synonyms? Or? They're very close. So close. Mm -hmm. So uh, it would be okay uh, to... Well, I find it very difficult to uh, separate them because of the way the English uh, meanings work. It's even but difficult to separate in the Pali. In Pali, okay. Yeah. They're very close. Okay. But you have to look for it. The reason I need to feed on something is because I'm hungry. I'm thirsting for something. So look into the thirst. That's the tanha. That's the tanha. Okay. So then um, stress is um, both a physical and a mental The Buddha is talking about the mental, mental stress. And then... How do you perceive? How does the mind perceive that stress within the framework of the mental? Is there not any translation, like in the body? Well, the, the Buddha talks about physical pain and mental pain, but when he's talking about the first noble truth, he's talking about the, the mental side. It's the mind that needs to feed. Is there any correlating physical? Well, you may, find, you may have some physical symptoms that would come up with that, but the physical symptoms are not the suffering. It's, it's the mind, the mental side, that's the suffering. So, so it's a, a perceptual, the perceptual... Well, again, you, there are certain perceptions that would lead you to crave and then to cling. That's part of the build-up to the causes. So by focusing on your perception... You can you, you change untangle. the perception of something. If you're saying, you know, I really, really need that next fix, you know. I cannot think of any other way of existing without getting my next hit. You're going to be setting yourself up. And if you say, I cannot imagine myself living without X, you're setting yourself up to suffer. So part of re reframing your perceptions is learning how to reframe your imagination. This is one of the reasons we have the teachings, is the Buddha allows you to imagine other ways of acting in the world, aside from the ways you have been acting. So you're watching your habitual patterns and then the connected perceptions. Mm -hmm. So you can unravel either way yeah. of redefining, reperceiving to something more skillful or refined. When, when I first met John Fu, I made a comment one time about you know, how the body needs sex. 
you know, grew up in America, and that's what we're taught, right? And he said, the body doesn't need anything. It's perfectly content to die. <laughs> <laughs> You're the one that needs it, you know. <laughs> so you have to learn how to change your perception. You can't blame it on the body. Sorry, Tanjif. I don't know if you've answered this already, but what is the difference between suffering and stress? Suffering is more extreme stress. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, this is the weakness of using stress to translate dukkha, because sometimes, you know, if you say you, you were run over by a car and you're really stressed out. Um, <laughs> which is, this is why I will use stress and suffering as kind of a conglomerate to cover the whole range. Shall I? Okay. Um, how can we develop more constant, that, uh, steady, appropriate attention? Because during meditation, a lot of times we can do it, but during real-time situation, we got absorbed into the situation. It's hard to keep uh, the appropriate attention. Okay, that's because, that's because you've gone into another state of becoming as you're in that other situation. And in that state of becoming, again, certain questions make sense, other questions do not make sense because it's related to a particular desire. So you have to learn how to pull out and say, what is the desire that's pulling me right now? That's put me into this mental state where I feel I have to do X when I know it's not skillful. Yes, but the, when the situation is complex, when you're dealing with people, dealing with work, um, you, come, you tend to fall back to your habitual behavior or thinking uh, more automatic. It's, you're not like the mindfulness. Sometimes it's not, it's not there like in... You know, every instant, every every instant of time. Well, this is why you have to learn how to breathe. <laughs> to remind you, I mean, this is one of the reasons why you do breath meditation is that you get the questions of appropriate attention get associated with the breath. And so, you know, you find yourself yelling at one of your coworkers. Oh, wait a minute! I have to change the way I'm approaching this. Think of what would be. You have to think in the long. I mean, the basic issue of discernment is learning how to think in the long term. As opposed to what I feel, you know, my sort of instinctive reaction right now, and that requires just to keep trying to remind yourself. I mean, this is what mindfulness means: is you remind. You know, you're holding something in mind, which is why it's good to take little meditation breaks throughout the day, you know, little five-minute rest stops, and then say, "Okay, now can I carry my intention through the next? Let's see when I lose it." and see how much longer I can maintain it. So as meditation goes on, that mindfulness will become more constant? You have to remember to apply it. Otherwise you become like the kind of person who goes down to the gym, lifts weights, and comes home and doesn't lift a finger. I, I guess what I, I meant is, as you practice, would it become automatic? No, it doesn't no, become automatic. It doesn't you, know, you, have, you have to intend to apply it. Okay. Um, my other question is... Uh, for the mental stress, is there any part of it that's related to biological uh, factors? So it might not be as easy to... Our defilements have trained themselves so they can take advantage of our biological organism. In other words, when anger comes in, it will force you to breathe in a certain way. 
and can say, if I don't get this anger out of my system, I'm going to explode or get cancer or something, so I got to get... I mean, it's, it's, it's basically hijacked your sense of your body. And, you know, you can sit here and focus on, as I said, you focus on the pleasant sensations in the body, and it can be very easeful. Or you can sit here and see, there's, guys, there's pain here, there's pain there, and you kind of stitch the pains together, and all of a sudden you find your whole body is consumed by the pain. There's part of the mind that does this. So you can't blame everything on the body, because sometimes the body, the, the, a particular mind state hijacks the body and then tries to squeeze your nerves in order to do what, you, what it wants you to do. So we're dealing with the mental part. The mental part is the important part, yeah. Okay. Now you can work on the mental part by consciously breathing in a way that's more relaxing, but you can't blame everything on your hormones. <laughs> okay, thank you. Question way in the back. Oh. Okay, go ahead. Um, I was just wondering about the uh, the needs, like the physical needs, like for example, if there was homelessness, because you said something like the stress is mental, mm-hmm. but what about if there are real things like the basic, like you know, food, housing, medicine, you know, the requisite. Okay, and, and, and as an expression of your compassion and your generosity, you help these people. But there are, I, I've known a lot of very poor people who were actually pretty happy. Again, a lot of, a lot of the stress really is mental. And in a case like that, you want to help people who are lacking, but then at the same time you say, well, even if I get them off the street and into a nice home, are they going to be happy? Not necessarily. They have, they have other needs as well. They have more mental needs. So that's, I think you said before about the impermanence and the anicca from whatever like like I was taken by the image of the waves and everything that mm-hmm. like you know like I think I have regarded it as more like well when you know you get a good wave or I mean or like it's always going to be impermanent right. whatever but but the whole you're saying that the whole system is the, the, the goal itself is impermanent like when no, the goal, the goal will be outside of space and time, which means it's not going to be affected by impermanence. The goal is outside of yeah, space and time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The ultimate goal. Okay. This is going to give you a little preview for tomorrow morning's talk, oh. which is that the present moment is not the goal. And the, the story I was going to use tomorrow morning, and I'll give it a little preview here. I was in, in France a couple of months back, and I was teaching there, and... Toward the end of the trip, I was standing in front of the hotel waiting for a, a ride to pick me up to take me to a Vipassana center to give a talk. And I suddenly realized that it was my first time in France since my arrival that I didn't have a translator with me. My French is god-awful. And suppose somebody comes up and asks me a question. What am I going to do? And sure enough, this telephone line worker across the street sees me. He comes over and he says, Marvelous, marvelous, you're just the person I'm looking for. Um, does Buddhism teach you to be happy? I said, yes. And how does it do that? I said, well, here I'm struggling with my French. You know, it teaches you to be virtuous and generous and you meditate. How do you meditate? I said, well, we've got a website. <laughs> and so I typed in the, the address on his phone. And he thanked me and shook my hand and went back to work. And when I went to the Vipassana Center, I told them the story of the, of the line worker. I said, if I had told him that it meant just learning how to be with... and Because his complaint was he had a miserable job and he was surrounded by dishonest people and he wanted, he, it was really hard for him to find happiness. 
And if I had told him, well, just learn how to accept your miserable job and learn how to accept the dishonest people, he would have walk, walked away. You know? And that's not, just accepting is not the answer. And there's, there's got to be something better than the present moment, which is what the Buddha teaches. What is that? Sorry, then. Nirvana. Nirvana. So you're, we're all moving towards nirvana. And, well, uh, that's what the goal is. Yeah, yeah I see. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a question in the back, and then we have to break for lunch. Thank you. Uh, the skills in question, I, I need to contemplate a lot more, but the first brush, what I'm thinking is, the categorical answers are the ones that pertain to the path, how I do what I do. Mm-hmm. And anything related to the destination <laughs> seems to be that Section 22 part of it, it doesn't seem to be relevant. Is that a fair way to look at it? No, you do have to have some idea of what the goal is. Okay. Um, and the, when the Buddha, ta- the Buddha does talk about nirvana, mm-hmm. he gives about 30-some names for it to give, some, yep. give you some idea of where we're headed. Um, the question of who you will be when you attain nirvana, right. that's when you put aside. Because that's, that's encouraging more objectification. Th- that's fair. Uh, I like that. The, the question is, if I'm clinging on to the destination, would I enjoy the ride? <laughs> it's like driving to a mountain on the horizon. If you spend all your time looking at the mountain as you drive along, what's going to happen? Yeah. You drive off the road, you run into people, you know. Fair. You focus on the road. Thank you. Every now and then you check your rearview mirror to make sure the mountain is not (laughs) behind you. (laughs) Makes sense. Thank you. Okay, we've got a break for lunch.